Uh-huh. Thank you. What a privilege it is to be back here. And, uh, and again, my name is uh, Michael Blythe. I'm from Calvary Baptist Church, Marina, California. And uh, we've been praying for you folk, and we know that God has your next pastor out there. So just uh, stay faithful in prayer and let the process play out. And we know that in his time, he'll provide uh, your brand new pastor. But until then, we've been praying for you. And I count it a privilege to be able to be here and fill the pulpit today and uh, see and reacquaint myself with some of you folk again. Uh, Josiah, he comes over to our church every once in a while and get to have some fellowship with him. And through this, I've been able to meet uh, Brother Jeff and so glad that, uh, and some of you other folk. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. I'm sorry, Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews in chapter 11. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm typically what we would call an expository type preacher in that I'll just preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. But uh, on occasion, I'll also do some topical type messages. And that's what I want to do today. This morning, I want to preach a message I've entitled, Following by faith and encourage you folk to be able to what it is to have a walk of faith uh, a word that we throw around a lot but i want to use as my springboard obviously what's often referred to as the hall of faith from hebrews chapter 11 and so let me begin reading in verse 1 i'll probably read down through verse 6 now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him or for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And by faith, it is impossible to please him for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Father in heaven, I pray for these next few moments now that as we sit underneath your word, your spirit would attend and um, give us insight and, and uh, illuminate your word to each of our hearts. Father, help us to understand truly this concept of faith, what it is to live by faith. And then, Father, if, by, if there's anyone here today that needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, I pray that the spirit would accomplish that work as well. We ask these things now in Jesus' name, amen. In Paul's second epistle to the church at Thessalonica, he opens the letter with his customary greeting in that he expresses thanksgiving for something he observed in their spiritual growth. And uh, now, do we have the PowerPoint going here this morning, brother? Okay, I don't see it. I have to, is it, uh, I don't see it up on the screen back there. It, all right, there we go. Thank you so much. There it is. Thank you. So, and uh, there we go, right there. I'm going to make sure I know what I'm doing here. All right. He, Paul writes here, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. 
So Paul was thankful that these believers in Thessalonica were growing and maturing in their faith. In other words, after their salvation, they were living a life of faith. Now, that word faith is something that we often throw around all the time. You'll hear people say, you'll hear, hear people talk about things when and things are going good. They'll say, uh, I just knew things would turn around if I had just enough faith. Or you'll hear people recommend it when things are not sure what to say. I, I'm sorry you're going through this, but just have faith. And faith and belief are often used in the same context, sometimes interchangeably, but they're not quite the same thing because belief is an intellectual acceptance of something that is true or exists. For example, if you ask the average person, do you believe in Abraham Lincoln? They would take that to mean, do you believe that that person existed? However, faith, it's more of a trust and commitment to that which one accepts intellectually, that one believes is true. For example, it's very possible to believe in God, but not have real faith in God. James speaks of this. In James chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. So the demons today believe in God. If we could bring Satan into this place, he would tell you he believes in God. And he also believes in the judgment that awaits him one day, and he trembles at that very thought. And so you, many people likewise today believe a certain set of facts about God, and in some cases their facts may be completely biblical. However, the question is, have they committed themselves to trust and obey God? So the demons believe in God, but they've not committed themselves to trust and obey God. They, in fact, live in rebellion against God. And so, yes, one can say, I believe in God, and still not live in a sense of trust and commitment to God and obedience to him. And so biblical faith is never simply giving assent to a certain set of facts. In modern usage, belief often refers to mental agreement. Faith refers to wholehearted commitment. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to learn to follow him in faith. To truly follow Jesus requires following him in faith, and that involves a complete trust and a wholehearted commitment to him. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And so in this message this morning, that's what I want to explore a little bit in this topical message on the subject of faith. I'm going to begin this morning with a definition of faith, then we'll consider the direction of faith, and lastly, some dynamics of faith. In other words, what does faith in action look like? Now there's a big idea that I want you to get from the message this morning, and that's simply this. Biblical faith is trust and commitment to God that results in obedience to the gospel, as well as a life of obedience to his word. And so as you begin to follow the Lord in faith with complete trust and commitment, that, my friends, is when exciting things begin to happen in your life. And so with that in mind, I want to begin our study this morning with the definition of faith. And the Bible gives us this brief definition in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, when it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this theme of faith is not random. It actually connects to 
uh, if, before the Bible is written, obviously, we know that there were no chapter and verse divisions. Those are not inspired. Those were added by man later. And so the author of the book of Hebrews has already been discussing faith. In Hebrews 10 and verse 38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's a quotation from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And so it should be noted this morning as I begin that when I talk about this definition of faith, it assumes that the object of our faith is God and his word, a truth that we're going to explore a little bit later on. But this brief definition offers two important characteristics for us to consider this morning. First, faith involves having a confidence in God. I want you to notice again what it says. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance, it's translated from a Greek word that means literally to place or set under. It refers to that which is the basis or the underlying essence of, the, of a thing, of that of which you are confident. So faith provides the firm foundation. It, it provides the firm ground. It gives you a basis of confidence of something upon which to stand. Now, obviously what we're talking about in this context is faith confidently believes in God. For example, Hebrews speaks of the faith of Abraham. If we continued on reading in our text, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, it speaks of Abraham leaving his home by faith. God said, Abraham, I want you to go. Abraham, where am I going? He says, I'll tell you when you get there. And literally, he was just supposed to go forward and God would direct him. Now, Abraham also mentions in verse 10 that he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. You know what city that is? That's the new Jerusalem that's unveiled for us in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. Abraham died without ever having seen that new Jerusalem. In fact, you and I have not seen that yet either, but one of these days we will. But Abraham believed that he would. How do we know that? Because in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. In other words, Abraham, as well as others, did not die saying, oh, God said that he was going to do this. He said that I was going to see this city whose builder and maker is God. And I never did see that city. God completely failed. God completely lied. No, that's not what he said. He, he died rather having believed this promise will come. I have a confidence in God. Now, the other thing that depicts this confidence is that phrase, the things that are hoped for. The Greek word translated hope sometimes it, it, it literally has the idea of a confident expectation. Sometimes that same word is translated trust. For example, in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust or have a confident expectation in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Paul isn't saying don't have confidence in, don't have confidence in your worldly riches, he's saying. Have confidence, have a confidence in God, have your hope in God. In Psalm 42 and verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope, or have a confident expectation in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance in my God. So the word hope, the same idea of confidence or trust, hope in God means have a confidence in God. 
So faith involves this confidence in God. But then also, faith involves conviction in God. We know that because as our verse continues in this definition, it says, now faith is the substance, we've already explored that, but also the evidence of things not seen. Now this time I want to focus on that word evidence. It's translated from a Greek word that means literally conviction. Conviction is a firmly held belief. Sometimes we'll say that man or that person is a person of conviction. A person with conviction is committed to what they believe. They are convinced it's true. So let me consider a couple examples of how this all plays out. Noah was actually convinced in, I'm sorry, let me go back here. Noah was convinced of the improbable. Again, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 7 of Hebrews in chapter 11. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Most of you, I'm assuming, know the story of Noah. Noah received a divine command of rain that would flood and destroy this earth. We see this in Genesis chapter 7, or verse 4. God says, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Now Noah, by faith, begins preparing this ark that would be a place of safety so that he and his family could be rescued from this coming flood of judgment, as well as anybody else who would believe of this. But there's something else at play here. Many, when it says that he was warned of things not yet seen as yet, there's a couple different thoughts in that. Some believe, obviously, that uh, the world had not yet seen a worldwide flood or a great flood like this would be. Some believe it might not have even believed Noah had even seen rain yet. They base that upon what it tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field was grown, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the earth. For there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. So when Noah receives this word that rain was going to come, if that's in fact true that in this pre-flood world that rain was not yet something that man was familiar with, it would be, a, it would be like the word snarfle. Let's say a weatherman says, hey, it's going to snarfle tomorrow. You'd be like, what? Snarfle, what's that? Exactly. We have absolutely no concept what that is. But Noah, because of who says it, begins to move with fear and has this confident expectation and is absolutely convinced that this is going to happen, a thing that he's not yet seen, that the rest of the world thought was completely improbable, so much to, to the point that when the flood actually came, nobody got in the ark but Noah and his family. Noah was convinced of that which seemed improbable. But then also, we see another example, Abraham and Sarah's faith and convinced of that which seems impossible. Look down at verse 11 in your Bible. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him, that's God, faithful who had promised. Note that phrase, she bore a child when she was past age. This is a reference to God's promise to Sarah and Abraham. 
In Genesis 17, verses 15 through 17, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I'll bless her and also give you a son by her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? You see, from a human standpoint, it is impossible for a ninety-year-old woman and a hundred-year-old man to have a child. Yet that is exactly what God told Abraham and Sarah would happen. Later on in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abraham and he repeats this very promise of child, that, that they're, they're, of God, that they're going to have this child in their old age. Now, this is that account where Sarah, she's in her tent and she overhears this and she begins to laugh. And the angel of the Lord says, why are you laughing? And she said, I didn't laugh. Oh, yeah, you did. And then he said in, in Genesis 18 verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Romans chapter 4 gives us a little commentary on the Bible how Abraham, by faith, was absolutely convinced that this impossible thing could happen. In Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, and not being weak in faith, he, that's Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he is about 100 years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced that which he had promised, he was also able to perform. So Abraham's fully persuaded that the impossible could happen because God declared it would happen. Thus, before it ever happened, he was convinced that God can and would allow Sarah to conceive and he would be the father that would bring forth this conception. So that brings us to, here's the working definition of faith that I want us to consider this morning from Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Faith is such a confidence and conviction in God that one will act in obedience to his word, even if that which God asks seems improbable or seems impossible. So that's the definition of faith. The second thing that I want us to consider this morning now would be the direction of faith. It's important, it's imperative to see that we're not talking this morning about what we would call a blind faith. Faith must be directed or placed toward something or someone, and the object of that, our faith is only going to be as strong as the object of that faith. And so there are three basic systems of thinking that are common to mankind. You have what's called rationalism, empiricism, and there's faith. And all of these are documented in Scripture. Let me consider what's referred to as rationalism this morning. Rationalism teaches you to place your faith in human reasoning and logic. You decide for yourself right from wrong, even if it perhaps violates Scripture. That's what we see taking place in the Garden of Eden. And God had given a command, a simple command. Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that. The day you eat thereof, you're going to die. And Adam and Eve were great with that until Satan enters the garden. And Satan begins to plant in their mind, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating. Are you sure that God said that you can't eat of all the tree? Oh, you're not surely going to die. And then Eve starts to rationalize. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and desired to make one wise, then she took thereof and did eat, the Bible says. So that's rationalism. 
And so the Bible, the book of Proverbs, describes the end of those who place their faith in human reasoning. In Proverbs 14 and verse 12, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. But then there's a, another way that we could uh, come to a conclusion or direct our faith, and that's in things that are called empirical or empiricism. Empiricism is related to the scientific method. It's placing your faith in that which can be known through scientific observation and experimentation. From the ancient world, it's the theory that, one, that what one can see or sense or experience, that's the only true source of knowledge. That's the only thing that is real. Now, Paul contrasts biblical faith and empiricism in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, everything that we see right now, that's empirical evidence of its reality. We can see it with our senses. That's what he's talking about. But then he also mentions this. There are things which are not seen. There is a realm, a spiritual realm, that you and I have never seen before. I believe in heaven. I've never yet seen it. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Never yet seen him. And so these are things that we have to exercise faith in. These can't be shown empirically. Things which are, uh, are seen are temporary. Things which are not seen are eternal. So the things which are seen are empirical. However, as we've already learned, faith is confident and convinced of things which are not yet seen. Making decisions and acting only on the basis of empirical evidence is not the Christian way. In fact, God cannot be known empirically. God can only be known by faith. And so that's why Peter writes, Whom having not seen, you love. I'll bet if you're a Christian, there have been times you says, I love God. But have you ever seen God? But here he is. Him who you've never seen, you love. And so though you do not see him yet believing, Peter says, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So that begs the question. If we can't really fully rely upon our human reasoning, and nor can we rely on what can be observed fully with our eyes, where do we direct our faith? And that's where we come into the direction of faith. Faith's directed toward the person of God. The Bible tells us this in several different occasions. In Mark 11 and verse 22, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. In 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 20, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. The object of faith must always be God. We cannot trust our human reasoning. We cannot even trust that which we can see and prove in the natural world because God can do miracles which transcends all the laws of nature. He created all these things, and so he can transcend them. We've already seen illustrations in the life of Abraham and Sarah, but rationalism and empiricism would conclude both that neither one of those individuals could produce a child, but that doesn't matter to God because God has power to change the laws of nature if need be. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. And so the omnipotence of God is that attribute by which he brings anything to pass. In other words, God has the power to do everything that he says. We're told in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. 
The Lord Jesus says in Luke 18 and verse 27, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. But not only must we consider this power that God has, this omnipotence that God has, but we got to consider his perfection. See, God is sinless and God is perfect in every aspect of his being. That means God will always do what he says. The writer in Hebrews in 6 and verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. In the book of Numbers, it says, God is not a man that he should, that, uh, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So when you consider the power of God and this perfection of God, you soon realize that God and God alone is the only one that's worthy of our complete confidence and our complete trust because God's the only one who's completely trustworthy at all times. He's the only one that cannot fail. Human reasoning and experience cannot be trusted, but God can be trusted at all times. So as we consider the direction of faith, not only do we see it needs to be directed toward the person of God, but also needs to be directed toward the word of God. Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 55 and verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, says God, and it will prosper in the thing for which I've sent it. In Ezekiel 12 and verse 25, for I am the Lord, I speak the word which I speak will come to pass. So by extension of a God who's perfect, that means every word that he speaks is also perfect, and anything that God says will happen, will happen. Because God is powerful and perfect in his person, then anything God says can be trusted and trustworthy. Anything that God promises, God will perform. Anything that God mandates, he will make happen. So as Christians, our faith is not some blind faith in which we're being asked to take a leap into the unknown. Our faith is based upon specific facts spoken by God who cannot lie that he's preserved for us in his inerrant, inspired word. And the Old Testament saints are commended in the book of Hebrews because they had faith in the word of God. They made decisions and acted on the words spoken to them by God. And we're to direct our faith toward the word of God as well. We sometimes sing an old hymn, Standing on the Promise. And that second verse goes, Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. So if we're to follow the Lord, there comes a point when you can't just study the word and have a knowledge of the word and just say that I believe the word, but you have to express faith in that word. You have to step out and you have to start obediently doing the things that God has said. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and the efficacy of our faith resides in the object of that faith. And if we place our faith in human reasoning or only that which can be empirically proven, we're never going to grow spiritually. You have to step out by faith every once in a while, my friends, and that's when God proves the reality of his words. So we've seen the definition of faith. We've seen the direction of faith. Faith isn't blind. It's directed upon God and his word. The third and final thing that I want us to consider this morning would be the dynamic of faith. And by dynamic, I mean the action or the power or the force of faith when it's in effect itself. This is not a complete or exhaustive list, 
But I want to close by giving you some things that cannot happen in your life apart from the dynamic of faith. First thing is, you cannot be saved apart from faith. The Bible declares very plainly that we are saved by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Many people try to rationalize salvation, and they do it with a simple, kind of like what I like to think of as a, an analogy of works versus good works versus bad works. And they look at themselves, and they rationalize themselves compared to someone else, and they say, well, I'm not as bad as like Hitler. I'm not as bad as like Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not that bad of a person, and I do do some good things, and their hope is that one day as they stand before the Lord, their good works are going to outweigh their bad works, and God will grant them some sort of favor, and they'll be allowed entrance into heaven. But my friends, the Bible says there could be nothing further from the truth. God does not at all show us any kind of favor based upon human merit, human work. There's only one way of salvation, and that's through faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that he accomplished on the cross at Calvary. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It goes on to say in verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That condemnation is eternal separation from God in a place the, place the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, as a literal lake of fire. God, however, does not desire anyone should perish in that lake of fire. God desires that men should come to repentance and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's wrath for sin. So you need to understand, God is holy. And there is not one sin that God can ever tolerate in his presence. God is also righteous. And that holy and righteous nature of God demands that he must, just as any judge on our earth must punish transgression of man's laws, God must punish the transgression of his laws as well. And aren't we thankful that God doesn't immediately punish, but he gives a space of time for people to repent and hear the gospel and come to faith. And so what God unfolded this plan from the foundation of the world to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross at Calvary. And when Christ was on that cross, all the wrath that God had for sin, he pours out on Jesus in that moment. We're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The Bible speaks very plainly. A day of wrath is coming. God's going to pour out his wrath upon this world for sin. But Christ has already died for the sins of man as our substitute. He was buried and he rose again, proving that God accepted that sacrifice. And salvation rests not on anything what we do, but by exercising faith in the fact that Jesus has already suffered and made the perfect sacrifice for sin. So what that means is simply this. If I will humbly confess the fact that I am indeed a sinner, and that I am deserving of God's wrath and God's punishment. 
but express faith in the fact that that wrath and punishment of God for sin has already been satisfied in Jesus. And I want to turn away. I want to repent of any good works that I can do. And I want to turn to, and I want to trust Jesus Christ alone and his, his finished sacrifice. And I call upon him to be my personal Savior. God promises that he will save. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. So very simply this morning, friends, I want to ask you, has there been a time when you have personally acknowledged the fact that you're a sinner and you repented of any idea that you yourself could gain favor from God by your good works? You've humbled yourself before God, acknowledged your sinfulness, and asked him for forgiveness of sin based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you've never, ever done that, Today is the day of salvation to do that. For you, you could do that today. Jesus gave this warning to all those that would not believe that he alone is the way of salvation. In John 8 and verse 24, Therefore I said to you that, that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, I am the Savior. In John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Do you believe that this morning? Have you called upon him by faith? One dynamic of faith is that faith will bring salvation from God. You cannot be saved without faith. Secondly, you cannot, be, you cannot please God without faith. God is not pleased with anyone who fails to live by faith, who fails to live by this confident expectation in what he has said. The Bible is very clear on this fact. We already looked at this verse before. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In the book of Hebrews 11, verse 2, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony, a good report. And then in, verse, uh, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, we cannot please God if we're not walking by faith. And again, one of the best illustrations of this comes from Hebrews chapter 11, which is, uh, again, recognizes what's called the hall of faith. And there's a man by the name of Enoch that had very much a testimony like this. Very little is known of Enoch. He first shows up in the book of Genesis. The narrative of his life in Genesis is very short. It's told in seven verses. In, he, in Genesis 5 and verse 18, it records the birth of Enoch. By the time we get down to Genesis 5 and verse 21, Enoch is age 65. He begats a son by the name of Methuselah. And the rest of Enoch's life is told like this in Genesis 5, 22 through 24. After he begat Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, despite this, Enoch's name appears in Hebrews chapter 11, which respect to those who exercise great faith, because what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Enoch, who was taken away so that he did not see death. 
He was translated. He was raptured, literally. He was not found because God had taken him. And for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, I can't guarantee you this morning that if you have a walk of faith so pleasing to God that he'll just rapture you right out of here. That may very well be. I believe that's necessary on God's end-time timetable. It could be the rapture of the church, and we could all be raptured out of here. But the fact of the matter is, if we do not get raptured out of here, we will face death, but we'll still be able to be in the presence of God. Now, some, because of their lack of faith, they fail to please God, and they missed out on the rewards of such faith. Now, Enoch's reward was he was able to be translated, taken up, raptured immediately into the presence of God. Sorry about that. But, but, then, uh, but then later, uh, by, that, that was his reward. Now, our reward may be something completely different than that. Now, my point, though, where I'm heading with this is that there are rewards that sometimes we miss out on because of our lack of faith. And we see this often throughout the New Testament. There'll just be one quick illustration I'll give. You have this account in, in, the, in the book of Mark that speaks of Christ wanting to go to his hometown of Nazareth to bring them the good news of the gospel. And as, he's, uh, as was his way, he would teach and he would often do miracles to validate that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Bible tells us in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 58, Now he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief, a lack of faith is not pleasing to God. And unbelief is hindering us from seeing the power and blessing of God in our churches and in our families and in our homes and in various aspects of our life. So we've seen that you cannot be saved apart from faith. You cannot please God apart from faith. And you cannot serve God without faith. In Paul's opening benediction for the first epistle to the church at Thessalonica, he brings his customary word of thanksgiving and commendation. I want you to note very carefully what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing, now here's the phrase, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here this morning. I used to teach Greek. And uh, what that phrase, the work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, they're all in Greek what are called genitive phrases. And they're a specific type of genitive. They're called genitives of production. So if we were first century Koine Greek readers, we would read this, work produced by faith. Labor that's produced by love. Patience that's produced by hope. Now my point in keeping with what I'm talking about here, you cannot serve God without faith. That's exactly what Paul is alluding to here that's taking place in the church at Thessalonica. They're literally rendering works to God produced by their faith. Paul is commending them on works of service that spring forth from their faith. A similar thought is revealed in the little book of James. James teaches that faith does not come through works, but rather uh, faith is, or works are something that's produced as evidence of our faith. And so James says it like this. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? And then he gives a simple illustration. 
If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So when we're following the Lord by faith, we have opportunity, just like what James alludes to here, if we'll keep our eyes open, we'll see places where brothers and sisters in Christ need some help. We'll see an area where God has gifted us by his spirit to do a work of service. And so I believe very firmly in the fact that every single member is a minister. And read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There are spiritual gifts, and every single person in the body has a spiritual gift. And it's your place to discover, discern what that gift is, and begin to employ it by faith within the body so the body can be edified and built up, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. My question is, in what way are you serving by faith? When you look at all the gifts that Paul gives, there's not one gift in there where he says, Someone's got the gift of being a pew warmer. Everybody has a place where they can serve the Lord by faith. Now, as I close this morning, if you went to a doctor, he said, you've got this problem and it's going to require some surgery, you would probably agree without even fully understanding all that he wanted to do or needed to do that he's going to drug you, He's going to make you unconscious. He's going to take a knife. He's going to open you up. He's going to do his little surgery, maybe even remove some part out of your body while you're totally unconscious, sew you back up, and you're going to be okay with that. That takes faith. Even knowing that he's not perfect and could mess up. God wants us to exercise that same level of confidence, conviction in his word. With any human doctor... There's always some risk. As we've seen from God's word today, when you place your faith in God, there's absolutely no risk because God's the only one who's completely reliable and will always do what he's promised. The Christian life begins by exercising faith in the gospel, but after one's initial salvation experience, they must continue to follow the Lord and live by faith. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so again, the main truth I hope that you'll take this morning is this. Biblical faith is trust and commitment to God that results in obedience to the gospel as well as a life of obedience to his word. Have you ever obeyed the gospel and confess the fact that you're a sinner in need of salvation, that your good works will merit nothing before God and have faith in what Jesus did on the cross? A life of faith begins there. Then do you have enough confidence, conviction in God and his word that you are fully obeying him and what he asks you to do? Or maybe has the Holy Spirit this morning spoke to your heart about an area of your life where you're to be living out by faith, but you've not been doing it because fear. Fear will quench our faith. Remember Peter walking on the water? Lord says, I want to walk on the water. Lord says, come on down. And Peter, the Bible says he walked on the water. Till he saw the winds and the waves and began to get afraid, fear will quench our faith. And so we have to remember, keep our eyes on the Lord. And so the word of God gives 
direction in every single area of our lives. If you're a father and you're a husband, the word of God gives direction on how you're to live out those roles. If you're a mom and you're a wife, the word of God gives direction on how you're to live out as a mom and a wife. If you're an employer or an employee, the word of God gives direction on how you can live to be an exemplary type of employer-employee. These aren't things just to know mentally. These are things to live out so that now we're walking by faith, benefiting from the blessings that God says he'll give, and also being the salt and light in this world so that we display our faith to a lost and dying world. I want to encourage you to follow the Lord in faith. God is a rewarder of them who do.